anyway. David, there's coffee here. Yeah, I know, but I brought a cup. Oh, okay. Oh, that's good. Wow. Oh, nice. So I can take a little. Well, he now is a Okay, these are new colors. Can we, can we start? Boy, I'd love to. I'm, um, I want to. We've got a lot to do in purgatory to try to finish it today, and I, do, I don't want to look past the readings. Um, so I want to have a minute with them before, that I haven't planned on, but, um, and I want to have, give a minute for the movie. Gosh, too much. Um, you won't mind if we don't get out until 3 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> Lock the door. It's like an all-day retreat. Um, any prayers before we start? I want to, I want to include <coughs> Fred when we put, no, I do. Tell them to listen in on the tape. Oh, by the way, I, I, when I copy the tapes at home, I, I just click on them for a minute to check that they're okay. You, you should listen in on the tape sometimes. It, it, the last tape, I think probably the first 10 minutes of class were hilarious. I don't remember um, what joke you heaped on me, but I remember when you, whatever the humor was, or, or was it Monday night that, I think it was this class, but Monday night when somebody had a joke at my expense that I thought it was wonderful. I can't remember what it was. It may come off of David's. It may come off David's. Comes, yeah, off of his comment during the movie. <laughs> Ten minutes into the movie, he said, we're going to choose the next movie, Bob. <laughs> And I, I loved that. I know. The I, first I just, ten minutes, my mind was going like, "What did he do?" <laughs> I, I love that. I honestly, I always love that humor. When whenever our kids have gotten sick, my first comment will be, "You big wimp, knock it off." <laughs> and I said this to my kid. I hope on my deathbed, one of the kids will come up to me and say, "Dad, you just are a big wimp." <laughs> that's that's the way my humor goes. I guess it's a locker room soldier. You know, when you're in firing line, if you don't learn to laugh when you're about ready to die, what can you do? Um, so, I loved his comment. I don't remember. What was the movie? It was the, uh, the Deliverance? Oh, Depart oh, sorry, Departure. 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 Oh, Departure? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We can't I think almost the entire class was in tears. It was just, um, it was really touching. I'm glad people enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. um, any any prayer requests? Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself this morning. How amazing it is that we don't just receive your word, but you yourself, your very life, and with that life within us, your kingdom. Um, we're not here or there, we're both places at once. What, a, what an amazing mystery that we can be here in this class and know that in some ways we're of your kingdom. God, it's just um, how amazing, how grateful we are. Um, I ask a special blessing on all that we're doing as a group. Help us to take courage from what we're learning to um, bring you to the world, um, to be unafraid. Um, um, to grow in holiness, 
how hard that is. I think for most of us, um, strengthen us in our efforts this Lent to put away the world, um, to take on a holiness. Um, the opening words um, in the Mass this morning were um, to let the rep um, our acts of penance um, draw us closer to you. Let that be, um, even though the pain of it is giving up so much of the world that we've given ourselves to. Help us with that. Ask a special blessing on Fred. Um, let him know somewhere in his heart that he's missed. Um, troublemaker that he is. <laughs> Genuinely missed. Um, help him to get well. Surround him with your protection, please. Let no harm come to him. Help him to recover his health. And be with Bev and Sue in their recovery. Um, we're glad for um, all that Thomas passed through to bring him back on his feet. Um, help Linda quiet her mind as she um, stands beside him in this. Um, and I ask for a special grace for all of us um, <coughs> to be at peace with the problems that we genuinely carry, most of us, trusting, knowing that you are at work. Uh, it, it was in the Joseph story, it was in Christ's parable. When bad things happen, you'll bring a greater good out of them, and the effect on us will be a renewal, a rebirth. We become aware of things we weren't before. It's like we're renewed. We become somebody new, coming out of surgery. So whatever the struggles we have, each of us, help us to be somehow at peace, knowing, trusting, that you're going to bring something good out of them we never could ourselves. Help us to live in that hope and bring that to all that we do. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. <coughs> I don't want to forget this, so let's do this first, and then I want to come to the movie. And the uh, actually, no. Let me let me start with. I just I just want to make a a, a brief comment on the readings this morning. Um, There's a critic that I read who looks at literature as a form of Oedipal rivalry. It's pretty serious. It's the way he looks at all of it. it um, it's upsetting for me to see because I think there's so much more to literature than an Oedipal rivalry. But, but as I listened to the readings this morning, I, I was struck by the continuity between what happened with Cain and Abel and Joseph and his brothers. Cain envied his brother you know, because God was in his mind, so much more receptive. He didn't see that there was something wrong with him and the way he gave his gift. So he blamed his brother and killed him. And centuries later, we've got Joseph's brothers wanting to kill him out of envy, that his, um, their father loved him more than them and wanted to take his life. And it's really interesting to me, particularly because of the work that we did with Melville. I don't know that any of you made that connection. They put him in a God's providence? There it is, out in the desert, and they put him in a cistern, and people happen to come along at that moment, and you know what's going to happen. I mean, Joseph's going to go to Egypt, and his brothers are going to be saved. So out of this horrible, horrible um, act comes a great grace. But anyway, who, who saves him? It's the Ishmaelites. 
It's that outcast people that, that is responsible for saving Joseph um, and all that will take place because he is saved. It's just amazing to watch that. Remember, Melville's opening lines, call me Ishmael. He's the outcast one because, and this is where I wanted to go, because Christianity has failed. The Protestant world and northern New England world has, has failed. Call me Ishmael. He's an outcast. He, he doesn't have a place in that Christian world, you know. And those of you who've read Moby Dick will now know this. Um, Ahab is a tragic figure living out that Protestant, the Protestant theology, the, the sense of predestination that everything's <coughs> foreordained. Ishmael aligns himself with Ahab, as you remember, but very gradually he dissociates himself from that quest. And what happens, what makes that possible is he, be, he begins to look at the world and he finds meaning everywhere. Ahab doesn't. Ahab's stuck. He's in that narrow, determined world, you know, the thing foreordained. And Ishmael's finding meaning everywhere. I, I just look at that as, um, even, even though Melville not man, probably didn't have that in his mind, as recovering a Catholic tradition, because Ishmael's finding mean, everything in the universe. There's logos, there's meaning everywhere. Um, <clears throat> anyway, that, that strain of envy that, that runs from the very beginning, from the fall, through, um, through the Joseph story and into our own time, because you know from our reading of Dante that envy is one of the driving forces of the commercial republic. Not, not wanting to have somebody have something more than I. You know, we've been looking at that all along. Anyway, just one, one, one brief comment. Um, the, the parallel between the two readings was, is that um, the brothers wanted to kill Joseph and we know that what will happen is that a greater good will come from what happens. You'll go to Egypt, the brothers will be saved, um, a people will be saved, the whole people will come out of it, um, renewed. And that's exactly what Christ is describing in the parable, that the, that the, the owner of the vineyard um, gave the property to the stewards to take care of it, and they didn't. And the words were, how did he put it? I wish um, that the, that this, um, Great goodness, what was his word, the phrase? It's like the, the kingdom that was entrusted to you will now be given to somebody else. I just want those words to, if everybody will hold on to those today, <laughs> the kingdom that was given to you will be taken away. And obviously he's, he's speaking of the Jews. They had this great promise, they rejected it. Um, they killed the prophets, <clears throat> the son finally came and remember the last reading was um, the Lazarus story, going to hell and, and wanting somebody to come back and dip a, a finger in water just to quench his thirst. Um, that when the son came, because they killed all the prophets, they killed him. So the cornerstone that they rejected, the son himself, will be the cornerstone of this new, oh, the kingdom. It will be the cornerstone of the kingdom. Jacques Maritain has said, and I think there's so much truth to what he said, St. Paul reached a point in his life where he said, a veil has come over the Jews. They have ceased to live their religion. And Maritain's comment was, that veil has come over Christians in our world. 
It's exactly what Ishmael is saying. Call me Ishmael, the outcast. There is no place anymore. The world is so turned from God. So when Christ said the, the, the stone that was rejected by the builders will become the cornerstone of, of the new kingdom. So Christ will be that, and he will die, and out of that will come this great glory. Um, so the Joseph story, in that context, can be seen as a prefiguration of what happens with Christ. The, the thing I wanted to just bring out of this, because we have been we have been coming at this from so many different ways. Melville is just one of them. I think there's a great danger for all of us today. Mm, so I just I want I just want to take off from the reading today and Father's words. There's, he didn't say this, but I, I'm saying it. There's a great danger that, um, like the Jews in their period, um, it's a ser- it should be a serious question for us how well we're living our faith. Uh, seriously, how well we're living it. Um, one of the themes running through Dante from the beginning of the, pur- all the way from hell, but certainly of purgatory, is um, st- all of the penitents are working to strip themselves of their worldliness. That's the great theme, and we've seen how important that is. Um, we've seen that at each level, pra- the, the level of the pride, the proudful, the envious, the wrathful, the slothful, you know, with every act of penance that the people do, they learn to see differently. I don't want to go through all of this, but remember, I gave you that image of the wholeness of the Trinity, that the Father is not greater than um, or less than the whole of the Trinity. He's not less than the Father and the Spirit. Is one is less than two and three. The Father is as great as the Trinity itself, just as the Son and the Holy Spirit are, because they're one in being. They indwell in each other perfectly, right? So one is not greater. The relationship between the Father and Son doesn't express a relationship of inferiority or less than or more than. It's a relationship because Christ is begotten. He was there in the beginning. He's one with the Father. He wasn't made. Everybody's following that now, right? Well, I think it's a hierarchy that we learn on the earth, Father, Son, so that that creates a headset. Right. And I'm trying to shatter it, right? I mean, you all see it. We've gone over it. But the, the, the really important thing for us is not only knowing that, but knowing that what's happening to the souls as they move up purgatory is they're recovering that wholeness. It's no longer a subject-object, I, you. Each person pre- preserves his own individuality and separateness while becoming one with another. So that dichotomy, that dualism, that fractured condition that's one of the effects, I think, of the fall, disappears. So as the souls move up purgatory, they're learning to see differently. And as they see differently, they're learning to love better. They're beginning to be one with each other um, instead of divided. The church uses that phrase, one flesh. I believe in it. So anyway, I just, I just, was thinking about the reading today and, and how important it is for us to be concerned that, the, that our, our faith is, is weakening in the West. We're watching the West become a, a non-Christian culture for, for um, decades and decades now. 
and we're living in that world. So um, it's, if we're taking Dante seriously, as I hope we are, and trying to live it, we know we've got a tough task. That, I, that this isn't just to be read. If we're doing this for anything, it's, it's to learn something and live it. <coughs> Not keep it in our head, to live it, to make it live. Um, so I just wanted to take off from the reading because I was um, so taken by how the light it cast on the situation that we're in. We're, we're in the same position the Jews were in. The question to ask ourselves, has a veil come over Christianity? Are, are we not completely living our faith when, we, when Christ has asked us to? What's the cost, the, the worldliness that we don't want to give up? You know, it's always been there. So just a big push here um, from the support we get from our readings this morning and from what we're doing with Dante. Okay, let's, the movie, quick, before, sorry, there's so much. Any responses to the movie? I, oh, by the way, and I brought some copies of the disc for anybody who couldn't make it, um, for, because I, I would be sorry for any of you who couldn't make it not to see it, because it is a really special movie. For, for anybody who wasn't here, ten minutes into the movie, <laughs> the lights were off, the movie's on, and it wasn't ten minutes, maybe twenty minutes into the movie or so. I heard this voice behind me go, we're choosing the next one, Bob. <laughs> that was David. And I'll, I'll never live that down. <laughs> no, you won't. <laughs> I'm so I was just, I was so enjoying it, truly. I'm just, I'm so glad for that kind of humor. I, I genuinely am. And it's, it's, it's even more funny for me because I'm so aware. You know that I watch movies a good bit. 90% of the movies coming out of Hollywood are transformer movies and action movies. The, the whole point of Hollywood is to keep Americans' sensations, sensations, stimulated. Not their minds. I'm really serious about this. If you're back in the Iliad, you know about the appetites, how much they drive us. <clears throat> how much Hollywood drives, feeds on, feeds on us, keeping the appetites going so we want another one and another one and another one. And it's, it's not, it's, and it's, what do you call it, the, the graphics that they do to, the, Pixar. Hmm? Pixar. No, it's the, the CGI. Say it again. CGI. Yeah, the graphics. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know that they do amazing things with it, so you're watching it and sort of stunned. But it, the action just doesn't stop. So if you happen to watch a movie like this <clears throat> from Japan, <laughs> will you get on? You know, it's 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 very human. It's at a human pace. Slow. So rel right relative to our culture. It doesn't seem to be doing anything, when as a matter of fact, uh, a, a lot is going on. Um, anyway, I've got copies for anybody who didn't see it, because I'd be glad for you to take a copy home. But any comments on the movie? You better take it. No, it's a sad movie. I thought it was powerful. Oh, it is sad. Sad? He doesn't remember. At times, yeah. Oh, at times, yeah. yeah but at the end, not the whole. No, the ending was great. Yeah. I mean, it's like it built a crescendo. Yeah. Yep. 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 Lois, did you have something or no? Yeah, I just thought it was awesome. I, I, I'd watch it ten more times. You know, and I yeah. Probably would get something. Else yeah. Yeah. Every time. Yep. We've had so many. Yep. So many things to, yep. to focus on, and the seasons. I hadn't thought about that, but I was after you mentioned it, I was thinking about it. You know. During the weekend, I'm like, 
every one of them was in there. Yeah. Uh, it was, you know, the life seasons as well. Yeah. It's a beautiful movie. And the, the music. Oh, by the way, I've not said this before. I should have said it to the Monday class. You know how we've been talking about lyric and narrative? Most of our work is in narrative, but you know that we're reading lyric. Mm -hmm. And the lyric is in the interior of man. You go inside, the feelings. And it's always musical, or generally. There's a, a more noticeable um, oral musical quality to the lyric. It's, it's there in narrative, but it's diffused, it's spread out. Um, the, the critical terms, these come from Plato for the lyric and narrative are diegesis, diegetic, it's the inner self-speaking, and uh, mimetic, to imitate somebody else speaking. You know, Homer's imitating Achilles, he's telling a story. Achilles will speak in his voice, he, right, he's imitating. Is that clear? Mimesis is imitation. So in drama, the whole thing's being imitated. People speak in their voices. When a narrator speaks, he's speaking in his own voice, it's diegetic, but he's, he's describing somebody else doing something. So when Homer describes Achilles talking or Odysseus, or when Dante describes Virgil talking, he's performing an act of mimesis, he's imitating Virgil, right? In film, the equivalent of those two, we've got a story, a story's being imitated, the Diago or whatever his name was, you know, his words with his wife and the music we can see as a diegetic element. It's the inner spirit of the thing. And so often, you know, when you watch movies, you, there's a soundtrack. We don't think much of it except we'll say, there's a soundtrack. That soundtrack is as close to the lyric interior as you can get because we're not in an, a lyric world. We're in a narrative world, in a movie. You all following me? Mm -hmm. So if you think about the music, that cello piece that runs through it, it's called memory, I think, or, or casting back, I can't remember the term, but that's the diegetic element. It's the interior. It's, it's like it's an expression of the heart or the soul of what's being imitated, the story that's playing out before us. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. I want to be careful. No, it's not. Diegetic. Just a new term. Yeah, it is. It, all it means is the person speaking from within, it's, you know, the lyric. So. Any, anybody else? Anybody? Barbara? Did you enjoy it? Or? It took me a while. Um, I was um, impressed by the reverence that they had for someone who died for right. us. That was just incredible. Yeah. 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 And I'm assuming that that's real, that, mm. that that happens, or is that... Well, my assumption is, if you remember when his father died and he came at the end, and the other mortician or undertaker, yeah, whatever you call him, mortician is probably... You, you can see why... The, one of the great themes of that movie, of that culture, is that there's a stigma attached to that work to be a mortician is to be like a leprous person in the Old Testament. Remember when when Daigo's when he when his wife was waiting to when she found out the news and she was horrified and she asked him to give up the job and he, he got angry for a moment and said I can't it's you know it's 
and she got up to leave, and he started to go for her, and he started to touch her, and she said, don't touch me. Um, what was her word? You're dirty. What, it wasn't dirty, but it was, yeah, it was like that. Don't touch, filthy. I think it was filthy. You're filthy. Don't. That was real in that culture. I want to come back to that in a moment, but that was not just a dramatic scene. She felt that way. I remember the son of the, of the woman who owned the bathhouse. When the son and, and his wife and daughter were passing, the son said, stay away from him. It's like a leper in the Old Testament. You, you don't touch them because they're filthy. Um, so, and when the, when the mortician comes at the end, remember how crass he was. He just ripped off the blanket. And so I'm, I'm assuming that for part of that culture, it's disgusting and you toss it away, but it's clear that the one something is making its way into that culture to, to, to obviously express a reverence, and and precisely not only because it's it's protective of the dead, but because of its effect on the families involved. If you watch the families who are almost transformed in those moments with their saying goodbye, the guilt, the shame, the gratitude. It's like a sacrament that, that in those moments you almost become whole. It's like going through a sacrament that you recover something that you didn't know was there. Take away the sacrament, not there. A body, throw it away. The other thing I saw was the, um, the cycle of life yeah. and the reconciliation, of course, at the end. But even the salmon that went up, um, up the stream and then back dead, Some of them, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Okay, two quick, couple of quick thoughts here. For me, one of the signs of a good story is what critics would call its unity. Its unity, the Iliad, the Odyssey. I mean, we could go, I could go through one of those stories and show it. There's a unity in the action. Um, when a story gets too episodic and just episodes come up, when you get to the end, you wonder why. What's, you know. When a story has a unity, it, it condenses everything and it intensifies the effect. No matter what happened in that story, no matter what, th that, that story was as good as anything Shakespeare did. <coughs> Shakespeare does the same thing. No matter what <coughs> takes place in that story, it could be Hamlet, Macbeth, King Lear, could be the Iliad. No matter what happened in that story, it was all related to this one theme. That culture um, is a, is a face-saving culture. It has this profound sense of honor and appearances. If somebody, if somebody says something to, <coughs> negative about your honor, it, it goes straight to your soul. It will be the cause either for a fight or a duel, or suicide. That face-saving quality permeates the East. It's the Philippines, Japan, China. There's a great book um, called The Sword and the Chrysanthemum, which exactly captures it. It's such a cutting edge. There's this great beauty, you know, a geisha, or, or a great love of appearances to appear. That's because it's, it takes so seriously appearances. If somebody wounds them, it could be the smallest light. That wound will fester and take over a soul. 
So that's a face-saving culture. The guy bought the cello, remember the big cello? He did not tell his wife. It was a fortune. He hid it. He gets this job. He does not tell his wife because it's a degrading job. He's just he's a professional in an orchestra that goes under, and he's embarrassed to come home and take on a mortician's job to tell anybody because everybody thought, what a great man he is. He's, he's this musician. The humiliation that he would suffer in saying to somebody, I'm a mortician. He doesn't tell his wife. He doesn't tell anybody. So he's, I hope everybody's fine. He's keeping appearances. And finally, his wife learns, and she's devastated. Um, but that's the one thing that defines that whole culture, that face-saving pride. Into this culture comes this humility for the body and the dead. And it seems to me, my reading of that is that's absolutely Christian. If you look at the Eastern cultures, there's this disdain of the body. This, it's the love of the spirit, the nobility of a person that lives on. The body, you can kill it. You can. Husbands and wives, in, in another movie I had in my mind called Shall We Dance, which is Japanese, the, the American remake was awful, but Shall We Dance, in, in which a man is learning to dance. A husband and wife never hold hands, never touch each other in public. You don't happen. That does not happen. A geisha puts on a mask. It, you hold the body off in some place, it's like it's not deserving. It's like there's an implied contempt. Think about the importance of the incarnation and what that would do for a world like that. Because when Christ took on a body, he glorified it. Taking on a body said everything in nature is potentially holy and sacred. That's what Christ did. That's what the incarnation is. In that Eastern culture, it's not. <clears throat> So you don't touch the body. You saw the way that guy at the end just ripped off the cover of his father. I mean, no sense of respect at all. Um, and Daigo, Daigo, Daigo got really angry. You know, he pushed him away. Um, he got just got to catch myself here. That um, he did not want that to happen to his father, even though even though he was really angry at his dad. Um, so anyway, there's that face-saving element that runs through the... And what's interesting to me is that whole face-saving face saving is being shattered from beginning to end. Don't touch me, don't look at him, you know. The wife, the wife says, don't touch me, takes off. Here's an interesting critique through the movie. She, I, I, to me, she's a good woman. I thought she was a really good woman. Twice, she uses her love to bargain with him. Remember where we started with the... Uh, um, Presbyterians and the Anglicans with Milton, they wanted to use God to force the other to conform. The Presbyterians thought the Anglicans had not gone far enough against the Catholics. They thought they weren't pure enough. So they wanted to get power to make the Anglicans conform. When the Anglicans were in power, they wanted the Presbyterians to, you know. So we talked about this. Both religions are, are using politics to force God on somebody. Remember, that was, that was the struggle to, in Milton's time. She's doing the same. She's using her love to get him to do something. She's a good woman. I, th I think I just really enjoyed her. But remember when she saw that tape, and she's there in the room when he comes home, and she says, why, why did you do this, quit the job? She said, I, I, um, had you, I never complained. 
when I learned about the loss, I went along, she's saying, I did all these good things. She's trying to use her love to leverage him to get him to quit that job. That's the first time. She leaves and she discovers she's pregnant. This is one of the ironies. She comes back, she's pregnant. Her words are, I think you need me, you know, because of the clean. Yes, he obviously does. The irony is she needs him, she's pregnant. And she, she comes back, she says, I'm pregnant. They sit down together and she says, now that you have a son or you're going to have a child, you have to clean your act up, quit the job. That's the second time she uses love to try to get him to do what she wants. Right? Mm -hmm. The second time is more crucial because just in that moment, I mean, in terms of the action of the play, because it's right at that moment that they get the call that the bath woman, the woman who owns the bath, dies. And it's that that takes the couple there, and you, you know how important that is for the wife's conversion. Because she's watching Dake Dago. Remember, preparing that man, she's looking on in awe and watching the effect on the son who had nothing but contempt before that moment. And the son is looking at him with, I mean, I can't, it's hard for me to see the disciples looking any other way at Christ with absolute gratitude. It's like the Dago helped that son pass something so he could love his mother even more, let him go. It would have been impossible without Dago's. And the wife watches on, it's interesting, because when he finishes the ceremony, and, and, and it's so respectful, reverence. Remember, he holds out the two hands. The son comes up with two hands, and then the wife and the daughter, they're all saying goodbye to mother and grandmother. He start, Dago starts to put the stuff away, the, the, the ceremony is over, and he stops, and he looks over at the wife. Do you remember? And there's that pause where, and it's so gentle, there's no, almost no strain, but it's clear she's saying, I have to make up my mind and do this because something in her has changed. So it's like this very faint, understated struggle where she's looking and saying, I have to do this. And she goes up, God, and he hands her you know, the, the cloth and um, that's it for her. So we're, we're, I'm my reading. I believe something Christian is shattering that pride. There's a place for humiliation and humbleness now that there wasn't before. And part of the beauty of that theme, which I think is so. My my answer, my own question to you is, where is Christ in the movie? I think he's everywhere. Um, part of what makes that so expressive is the recurrence of the seasons. And we keep seeing, um, they, it, it's a sense that things pass, they die, but they come back to life. Die and come back to life. It's just, it's a recurrent. And they do it beautifully with the birds. And you see it with the son and the father, particularly at the end, you know, because it, in, the, in, the, in the flashbacks we see the father handing the son that large rock, um, and I'll come back to that in a second. And the son giving him a small one. And at the end, when he's trying to loosen the grip, he discovers the father has that rock. A little one, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. The little one. It, son gave him. Yeah, yep. <coughs> um, and you see a season coming and a renewal. I'm, I'll, in Christian terms, a rebirth. It's a renewal. So there's this wonderful sense of the seasons bringing rebirth, renewal. So they're not leaving it in something dark, 
or forbid or proud, this spirit has broken through. And what we're left with at the end is the sense of renewal, of reconciliation. Um, and it was touching when the wife, who just a beautiful expression, you know, and she she takes such pleasure in watching him do that. She's absolutely one with him in humility, in gratitude, no pride anymore. They love the prides behind them. It is so Christian in my reading of it. So a wonderful movie. Last thing, and remember after um, she visits, I think it's just after the visit, um, the ceremony with the bathwoman, he takes her to that little river and tries to find the stone, and he tells her the stone story. The stone story. This goes to our poetry. <laughs> Remember he said, before there was writing, before there was writing, people used to send stones to each other because it was the only way they could express how they felt. Before there was writing, I'm going to say this is poetry. They see very clearly that there's, this is the logos, this is the Christian, that there's something in nature. It's there in the recurring things. It's there in stones. Stones speak. If you, whatever stone you give expresses how you feel. If it's a large, bulky one like the Father, you, you, I mean, I think our sense is he's carrying this enormous weight. And when he dies, he's found <coughs> the son's the small, you know, the son takes it and gives it to the wife. They're going to give it to their child. So nature speaks in this world. It's not like nature in the West, as it's become for us. Nature speaks. And the other way in which I think that image of nature speaking plays itself out of the movie, remember intermittently in the movie we get this picture from the second half of the movie on, not in the first half, but some, somewhere about the middle of the movie, we keep getting this image of him sitting on a chair with a cello on this little knoll. It's a raised. The, the beauty of that, for me, is, is that he belongs there. He's absolutely at home. He's not in an orchestra. He's not at home. He's sitting on this knoll with a rivulet, with a rivulet running by. It's a little knoll. He's playing in that chair as if he belongs. To me, it's an image, symbol, an image, of the oneness of, of music with nature, that he's in tune using strings to give expression to something that's in nature. We call that music. But he's, he's helping us hear something that's there in, in nature. Is that clear? So there were so many ways in which this movie showed, I think, a Christian influence entering an Eastern world. The Logos, Christ, love, shattering that, you know, so just to really, and I'm almost sorry to say all this because it, in my mind it doesn't even begin to do justice to the movie. <laughs> you know, it's such a it's such a movie, movie. Any questions or comments? We'll we'll begin to do what we came here to do. <laughs> I think his music played on the small cello was just as beautiful as music played on the big cello. Yeah, yeah, I love that song. I want to get the soundtrack. I just love it. Beethoven and Bach, and 
I know the box, the Ave Maria was box Ave Maria. And notice that that, um, that the the head, the boss, um, had that they were gathered today, and it, it was Christmas Eve when they asked for the song, and the song they played on Christmas Eve was Ave Maria. I thought it was going to be Silent Night, but as soon as he played Ave Maria. Yeah, yeah Ave Maria. Very, very subtly understated Christian. In some ways, I thought he was doing what Elliot does. It's a Japanese audience. It's not Christian, largely. <coughs> but everything he's doing with it is, is indirectly, subtly Christian. And he's not hitting anybody over the head. He's doing an amazing job. And I can't believe that people in the audience, the Japanese audience, who, who would be offended at Christianity, wouldn't have been touched by that movie. It was so well. It was, it was very human. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. <coughs> Sorry to take so much time with this. Mm -hmm. You, you, my message to your husband, you get home, you tell that wimp to get out of bed and come to class next time. <laughs> That's for me. <laughs> Those are my words. Make sure you. Can you take out the poetry packet? We were supposed to be doing Dunn, John Dunn, but last class, somebody, somewhere, some, probably me, somewhere, something about dying and death, and that Dante's asking us to die daily, the church does. We have to, penance means learning to deny our wills, to, you know, to put our wills away, to say no to ourselves. And suddenly in the class there were all these negative responses to death. People were, people were saying, oh, I, don't know. I, I don't know if I want to die, I'm frightened. And because the whole thing, remember, is we're, I, <coughs> all of us, are, or most of us in this room, most of us, some of you are too young, most of us in this room are getting on and close to that. <coughs> Anyway, there are all these negative responses. So instead of doing done, I thought we would do two poems of um, Herbert. It's in the middle of the packet, just after Chaucer and um, Shakespeare's Sonnets. It says George Herbert Selections. Do you all have it? I've got it done. Listen, you don't have, just leave it. I'll, just listen. If you don't have, just listen, because you should enjoy it. Just listening. Get out of your heads. Just use your ears. Okay? George Herbert, remember, we've done this before. George Herbert was an Anglican priest just after the Reformation in England. He was a contemporary of Dunn's. He belongs to that group of poets called the Metaphysical Poets in the 17th century. He's writing just after Shakespeare. The Reformation is well underway. Um, you remember all these revolutions are taking place between the Crown and the Presbyterians and the Puritans. Catholics have been disenfranchised and um, threatened. The Puritans have gone north. They will eventually come to America. Um, 
the Catholics are in hiding, uh, priests are put in the tower uh, if they offer mass. So we're back in that in Milton's time, basically. Um, Herbert was an Anglican priest, like Gerard Manley Hopkins, who was Catholic. He, he um, devoted his life to poetry, wrote this extraordinary poetry. And his, the collection of his poems is divided into three parts called The Porch, The Church Militant, and The Church Triumphant. The Church Militant has to do with poems about our struggles with evil, the, because we're all in this war <coughs> struggling against evil. The Porch is the prelude to that. And The Church Triumphant is, um, are those poems dealing with um, that state once the battle's over in paradise. <coughs> so lots of the poems in the middle section are, are I think some of those beautiful in our language. Um, the, the very first one, if you look on that first page of Herbert's, if you have it, is in the shape of an altar. If you don't, oops, if you don't have it, here, take a look, you can just see, it just looks like that. Um, because what he's doing with that image is showing that every one of his poems <coughs> is a sacrifice, a gift to Christ. So he's, he's putting it on his altar. Okay? So turn to the second page, if you have a death. If you don't, just listen, just listen. Doc. Let it be. Just listen. Just listen. Don't worry, you guys. Just listen. Okay? Death. I, I wanted to read this because of so many of the negative things that people were saying on Monday night about dying. Because, you know, we, I mean, I think most of us look forward to it with terror, but we're asked to look forward to it with hope and gladness. It's our church. Not to be afraid of it. Here's um, Herbert on death. <coughs> death. Death I was once an uncouth, hideous thing, nothing but bones, the sad effect of sadder groans. Thy mouth was open, but thou couldst not sing, for we considered thee as at some six or ten years hence, off in the future, after the loss of life and sense, flesh being turned to dust and bones to sticks. We looked on this side of thee, shooting short, where did we, where we did find the shells of fledged souls left behind, dry dust, which sheds no tears but may extort. As we get better before we die, you know, that sort of thing. But since our Savior's death did put some blood into thy face, thou art grown fair and full of grace much in request, much sought for as a good. For we do now behold thee gay and glad as a doomsday, when souls shall wear their new array, and all thy bones with beauty shall be clad. Therefore we can go die as sleep and trust half that we have unto an honest faithful grave, making our pillows either down or dust. So he's asking us not to be afraid, to be glad, because of death, we will be with God. Go back to page one. <coughs> we'll read Earth's. Yeah, love. Read love. 
Love bade me welcome, yet my soldier back, guilty of dust and sin. The quick-eyed love of the Negro slack from my first entrance in, drew near to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful. Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply. Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Beautiful poems. <laughs> One of the things that seems to me you learn with this poem is you can't argue with Christ. <laughs> However great our sins are, However great our sins are, he's still saying, I took them away. Here I am. Here I am. Here I am. Okay. Let's. Let's. Do Dante. There's um, several things I want to uh, look at this morning. ready to wind up the purgatory and set off um, into the heavens. And there's a couple of troubling questions we have to face here. So I'm just going to throw them out and hope, hopefully what we do will answer them, I hope. Um, you know that Dante's undergoing this purgation and with each level he gets a P erased and a beatitude is given. Every one of the beatitude um, matches the virtue of that cornice and its sin. It's a response to the particular sin. What's happening to every one of the penitents is with each act of penance, and I take this as being true for us, every time we make an act of penance, it changes us. A, a spirit of humility grows in us. That's why the church is doing this. That's why Lent is so important. And what we see happening is that um, level by level, Dante is recovering this wholeness. Remember this, this notion of memory, um, that it's one of the principles of the Trinity, that um, I am, I know I love, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, remember? I, I am, I know I love. God is the Father, I am, I am that am. He knows, he loves. Each one of those things lines up with one of the persons of the Trinity. St. Augustine's image of that was memory, understanding, and will. Memory is that place we go to to find what we've lost. It's to recover what we've lost. For most of it means keys to our car. <laughs> means, you know, Suzanne and I constantly bump into each other in a room and, and are looking puzzled and often it's 
<laughs> what did I lose? Where did I put that? Or um, so on one level, it clearly means that. Where did I put my keys? Or um, where did I misplace that letter or something? But for Dante, for Carl Jung, it meant so much more. It meant everything because everything exists for God. God has no memory. There's no past for him. But we have that image as everything being contained in him. It's all there. So um, at each level, they're recovering what they lost, what they once had. Except because a grace is being given now, they're going to be taken, this is so important, they're going to be taken to a point that takes them beyond where Adam was at Eden. Because they've suffered an evil, their own sins. So the grace that will be given to them will make them more than they were. This is Dante's way of showing with our church that our sins mean something important for us. And as a matter of fact, they're the basis of a greater grace because we know something we didn't before the fall. This is back in Milton, remember, with Adam unfallen and Eve. Um, so, so Dante's not dismissing evil. Fort Felix Culpa, Fortunate Fall. He's showing that we value our sins because they've given us something we didn't have before, one of which is Christ, that a divine love was given to us to answer. So as Dante goes up purgatory, he's recovering what he lost plus something more, a grace that Adam never had. So the wholeness they're coming to is much greater than anything Adam and Eve knew in the garden. And it leaves us with this problem. <clears throat> Serious. Dante's undergone this purgation. When he returns to the earthly paradise, I'll read the words, we'll come to it in a minute. Virgil says, when they come off the ledge of lust, I crown and mitre you. The crown, he's a king, mitre, the bishops. Um, we are priests, prophet, kings. He says, I crown and mitre you. Now do what you will. St. Augustine, love and do what you will. Dante's free, presumably. He's free. And yet when he meets Beatrice, she scathes him. She said, oh, you've condescended, have you, to visit the mountain? <laughs> and she makes it clear that Dante was going to be damned. Well, why this scathing? Why this scathing when Dante's already been purified? It's as if there's something left behind. There's still something more. So I want to come back to that in a moment. What's this something more? What, why does he have to have this encounter with Beatrice after he's already been purged, apparently purified? Is everybody following that? And Virgil, I want to, we have to come back to that because this is that moment when, when Beatrice approaches, Dante's knees begin to shake. He's going to pass out in a few minutes again. It'll be one more pass out, one more fainting. Um, when Beatrice approaches, he turns for Virgil because he's so shaking, he wants support from his father, his mentor, his, the man he loves. When he turned, remember, what did the angel say? Good for you. Don't look back. Don't look back. So we have to ask, what does this mean? Because this is the man Dante's love who's brought him to this point. I mean, how, how, how valuable is that? That he should go back to hell? Dante turns, he's gone. Virgil's gone. What does that moment mean, allegorically, in our story? On this journey of faith, what does that mean? So we've got a number of really important questions here, okay? We've talked about the worldliness. Dante 
the, the whole effort of purgatory is to strip us of that worldliness, to be, to be so attached to the world that we're not free. We're, we're bound by it in some way. <clears throat> A wholeness that we're trying to recover. When we, when we let off last week, we had gone through the upper cornices of purgatory. And remember that when we went up the mountain, the, the dividing point, um, something happened. Remember, purgatory is divided into three. Here is where he has the dream of the siren. And remember, the, the most important thing that I want, that I'd like to leave everybody with is, she's an image of idolatry. It's Dante's treatment of idolatry because everything above is love of good things. Everything below is love of evil. Pride, envy, wrath is wanting an evil to come to other people in our pride, in our envy, in our wrath. <clears throat> Sloth is an inadequate love. We don't love as we should. And the rest of the sins are excessive loves. They're love of good things. We should love them. Things, food and wine, sex. Those are all good things. They're natural things. They should be loved. The problem up there is an excessive love. People are so attached to them that they're bound by them. And the siren marks that threshold. She's, she's an image of what everybody's going to face here. <coughs> and remember, when Dante goes to sleep on the level of sloth for the night, he has the dream of her. When he first sees her, she's stuttering, laying, sallow. But as he looks at her, his descriptions, he looks at her and he loosens her tongue. She begins to sing. He can't free himself. The point I want to reinforce here is this. Lucha has to come. Light. Remember, she plays an important role in the beginning of the, of the story because Mary initiates everything. That's so important. Mary initiated. Not God, not Christ, Mary. It was Mary's love of Dante, a fellow human, that sends her to Lucia, who goes to Beatrice, who goes to Virgil. Lucia's light, Lucia, light. She's an image of the light from God, grace, given to Beatrice, to go to Dante, or sorry, Virgil. So while Dante's in this dream, Lucia comes to Virgil and says, wake him up. Virgil's not waking him. And when Virgil does wake him, he has to shake him almost violently to get him up. What Dante's showing us, this is so important. The, the Remember, she only has a power that he gives her, right? He's the one who loosens her, the way he looks at her. That is, it's an image of idolatry. We tend to love something more than we should. We're, we're taking the love that should be directed towards God and directing it towards another. And no other thing will ever equal. So if we, if we put an infinite love on something, somebody, rather than God, we're making that thing more than it. It's, it's going to have a dark power over us. Sex, food, drink things, right, whatever it is, comfort, wealth. Um, um, Virgil isn't adequate to wake Dante. Reason's not adequate. Dante cannot get free of that power without divine help. And I, I think I gave you the example, remember in the Odyssey, when Odysseus is with Calypso and Circe? He cannot get off those islands on his own. Hermes has to come help him. 
Homer's quite clear in this. If a man is left with the beauty of a woman or the beauty of earthly things, what we call mortal beauty, if a man's confronted with mortal beauty, particularly a man for a woman or, or men and women for things, they can become possessive. And those things will take possession of them, just like a demon. Yeah? What Dante's showing us, the church tells us, we know this, I think most of us know, we can't get free on our own. There's no way we can. Church calls it concupiscence. It's the, the Protestant world calls it depravity. We are so wounded. We're wounded completely. We're depraved. Dante doesn't believe that he's a Catholic. We're not depraved. We're wounded. Church calls it concupiscence. But that wound is so deep that in, our, in our, the way we use our loves, when we direct it at things that, that can't answer it, adequately answer it, we give them a power over us. So the siren episode is a really important one. Remember in the Odyssey, Odysseus wants to see the siren and the, the shoreline is just strewn with skulls. It's dead men. That's how powerful it is. So we're about ready to leave that world, the upper world. Um, we didn't talk about lust, but let me just say that um, um, <clears throat> the, you remember every ledge has had its own contrapasso. It's an image of the sin. The contrapasso in the level of the lustful is the, um, the inner bank of fire. Um, in, and it's interesting, in, in the lustful, all the souls want to be in the flame. You know, it's burning them. Um, so the contrapasso is the flame, and it's interesting. It's the only canto in which the sin and the form of penance are the same. Because love itself is a flame, um, but they've got to go through it to purify themselves. When Dante arrives on the flame, remember, he, or on the ledge, he, he encounters two rows. One of them going the right way, the, the way it should, I think it's clockwise, and the other going the opposite way. In the one, the one going the right way, it's, it's a row of, of largely men, I think. Most of, the, most of the souls in heaven and hell are men. Um, and they're, um, they're um, heterosexual. Their, their, their love was a natural love, but it was excessive. The souls going the opposite way are homosexuals. Um, and as the souls run, they're crying out the goads and the checks. Um, and you know that Mary is the first, always the first goad. You, what would be appropriate? I mean, if you've read it, you'll remember. But even if you don't, if you think about Mary, what's the virtue opposite um, lust? What would, what would line up with Mary? Purity. Chastity. chastity. Yeah, purity, chastity. Um, Mary's the one who said, I, I, I've known no man. What were her words? I think it was, I know no man. Remember? So once again, it, the, the answer is chastity, to answer it, to practice that. Um, and when Dante leaves the level, he, he's, um, the, the sin is removed by the angel of chastity. Um, and the goads are, are images of Sodom and Gomorrah and Pasiphae. For those of you who don't remember the myth, we've done this before. Um, she's the mother of the Minotaur. Remember, um, Zeus gave um, uh, Minos a, a bull, and he was so enthralled by the bull that he put it in his own pasture, he didn't want to give it up. To punish him, Zeus made Pasiphae, his wife, fall in love with the bull. She had um, Daedalus 
create a box on, on a, what's the word, uh, an effigy of the bull, of a cow, and mated with the bull. She did, as a woman. And the product of that union was the Minotaur, this beast sex. So allegorically, it's an image of the way sexes can um, create create a beast-like aspect to man, that we can become bestial in our sexual drives. It's interesting to see how the two of them, husband and wife, were involved. It was his envy of that and her wanting something so badly she, she did what she did with it. Um, so that's where we were. I, I want to do just a couple of things today. Um, why the poets? Why the poets? Let's take a look at the... Let's go to Upper Purgatory. I think starting around 27, let's see. Actually before, hold on, I don't know, here. Dante says um, in his upper can, um, levels on page 351, Dante has said repeatedly that he's come to cure his blindness, that he wants to recover his sight, to learn to see things the way they are. Um, he had the he had the dream that night. Um, before he rose to the earthly paradise, of Rachel and Leah, who are images of the divine and active life. Um, go back to 347 just for a second to get there. Um, as he passes through the fire, the, the angel removes the final P, and, um, and then we get this. Holy souls, no farther can you go without first suffering fire. So enter now and be not deaf to what is sung beyond. For Dante to go on to the earthly paradise, he has to pass through that fire. So remember, it's an image of lust itself, but it's also an image of the means of purification, purifying the, the lust. Um, 347 in the middle. Oh, my dear son, there may, be, there may be pain here, but there is no death. That's such a stunning line. Dante's got to suffer this pain knowing, I mean, the, the consolation is it won't cause him death. It won't burn him up. Remember all your memories. If I took care of you when we rode Gary and shall I do less, I'm not going to let you down. Believe me when I say that if you spent a thousand years within the fire's heart, it would not hin singe a single hair of yours. So he says, it's time. Get over your fear. There he is again. Go on. Top of 348. He said, somewhat annoyed to see me fixed and stubborn there. I mean, who wouldn't you? Is everybody following this? I mean, I hope you're, think how real. You're, you're looking at a fire, and you have to pass through it. How many of us would willingly step into that fire? And Virgil is saying, knock it off, get yourself together, go through. 
As Pyramus about to die, heard Thisbe utter her name, he raised his eyes and saw her there, the day mulberries turned blood red, just so my stubbornness melted away, hearing the name which blooms eternally within my mind, I turned to my wise guide. He shook his head and smiled, as at a child won over by an apple, as he said, well then what are we doing on this side? How can you not love Virgil? I cannot tell you how much I love this guy. And entering the flames ahead of me, he asked of Stasius, who for some time now had walked between us two, that he come last. Once in the fire, <laughs> I would gladly, I would have gladly jumped into the depths of boiling glass to find relief from that intensity of heat. My loving father tried to comfort me, talking of Beatrice as we moved. Already I can see her eyes, it seemed. Isn't that, that's what we do to coax a child, isn't it? You know, there's a piece of candy on the other side or something. Um, from somewhere else there came a voice singing to guide us. Listening to this, we emerged at last where the ascent begins. Venite benedicti patris mea, come ye blessed of my father. Remember, it, the purgatory opened with um, our father and that hymn, and it's closing with this. Um, come ye blessed of my father. Then the voice said, the sun is setting now and, and night is near. Do not lose time. Make haste before the waste. The west has given up its light. So they go through. Um, going over on 351 now. Um, when they arrive at the earthly paradise, this is Virgil. You now have seen, my son, the temporal and the eternal fire. You've reached the place where my dis discernment now has reached its end. I led you here with skill and intellect from here on. Let your pleasure be your guide. Whatever you do, do it. Because what you do will be in love. You're free. Behold the sun shining upon your brow. Go down until those lovely eyes rejoicing come, which tearful once urged me to come to you. You may sit here or wander as you please. Virgil Mary were worried. And they were in tears. Dante was in danger of being damned. Expect no longer words or signs from me. Now is your will upright, wholesome, and free. And, do, and not to heed its pleasure would be wrong. I crown and mitre you, Lord of yourself. Love and do what you will. Now, he meets Matilda. I don't want to go through this, but the descriptions of the earthly paradise are extraordinary. If you've read it, you know the, the wind, the scent from the earth. It's all heavenly. It's our near heavenly. Um, on page 361, suddenly Dante is aware of a procession approaching him. It, there, there are 24 elders. There are four men who are looking like sages. There's three women on one side of a chariot and four on the other. It's the three supernatural virtues, the four natural virtues. It's the 20 books, 24 books of the Old Testament. It's the four gospel writers. Okay? So what Dante's showing us, this is really important. When everybody, seriously, you can read this, it's like the book of Revelation. You can read it symbolically and completely miss it. What's happening is the mass is coming to him. And this is, to me, the most important thing. I'd never seen it when I was younger. It's not the mass broken up into weekends. I want everybody to think about that really seriously. We go to Mass on the weekends, yeah? Every weekend. We get the Mass broken up. Remember the wholeness I talked about, recovering? 
This is not the mass broken up. This is the mass in its fullness. All of it's there. So symbolically, what we're meant to see in this moment is the returning to the earthly paradise is not, once again, in whole and parts as we see them. It's whole. It's all there. Is that clear? The whole mass is there. So Dante's experienced this, this fullness to all of his beliefs. They're there. Okay? Um, I don't want to read it. It's too long. 361. There were three ladies circling in a dance near the right wheel. You know, there, he describes it all. And then he sees Beatrice um, because Beatrice is in this chariot um, being pulled by a griffin who is a lion and an eagle. So he's an image of Christ. And here I am again. Virgil's going to leave. Dante's already been purified. Why isn't he seeing Christ in his presence? Why is it this griffin? So strange things are happening. Okay? I, I, Dante's too great an artist not to be aware of what's going on. So why, why is he not seeing Christ? Why the griffin? The bottom of 365. Instantly, though many years had passed since last I stood trembling before her eyes, captured by adoration, stunned by awe, my soul that could not see her perfectly still felt succumbing to her mystery and power, the strength of its enduring love. This is the love that she first awakened to him as a young man in Florence when he saw in her an image of the Trinity. The sooner were my eyes struck by the force of the high piercing virtue I had known before I quit my boyhood years, that I turned to the left with all the confidence that makes a child run to its mother's arms when he's frightened and needs comforting. Top of 366. To say to Virgil, not one drop of blood is left inside my veins that does not throb. I recognize signs of the ancient flame. That ancient flame, I think, is an allusion to lust. That, the, that love and lust so mixed that when Dante saw her, that flame was awakened. Seeing her again brings this to mind. But Virgil was not there. We found ourselves without Virgil's sweet father, Virgil to whom for my salvation I gave up. I gave up my soul. She says, down the, this is where the feminists go nuts, 366 at the bottom. I sensed the regal sternness of her face as she continued in the tone of one who saves the sharpest words until the end. Yes, look at me. Yes, I am Beatrice. So you at last have deigned to climb the mountain? So you've condescended, have you, to join us here? You learned at last that here lies human bliss? I lowered my head and looked down at the stream that filled with shame at my reflection there. I quickly fixed my eyes upon the guy. He's going to pass out again in just a second because her, her words are going to be so stern. The women say, down 367, Lady, why do you shame him so? The women are saying. And she says, bottom of 368, When I passed into my second life and changed my life for life, that is when she died, right, and she left this world, that man you see straight after others and abandoned me. So clearly when she left, he went after other women. Instead of being faithful to her. Even though she was an image of the Trinity. When I had risen from flesh to spirit, became more beautiful, more virtuous, he found less pleasure in me, loved me less. I hope it's clear, it's obvious why that's so. Yeah? Because we're so fleshly, 
right? We don't love the things of the other world. We love things of the earth. Sex, food. He went after other women. Um, and the irony is she was more beautiful, more holy. He should have loved her more. So instead of being strengthened in his faith, he turned to the world. Um, when I had risen from the flesh, the spirit became more beautiful, more virtuous. He found less pleasure in me, loved me less, and wandered from, from the path that leads to truth, pursuing simulacra of the good, imitations of the good. I prayed that inspiration come to him through dreams and other means. In vain I tried to call him back, so little did he care. To such depths did he sink that finally there was no other way to save his soul except him have to see the damned in hell. That he might do this, I visited the dead. She went to get Virgil. Dante was damned. Is it clear? Yeah. He was damned. He should have turned to her. I, I'm trusting all of us know that, but the worldly pleasures have such a hold that instead of turning to holy things, he turned to them. He was in danger of damnation. Mary came to her. She went to Virgil, or Lucia, then to her, and then to Virgil. So Virgil's been his guide. Now, um, two couple of things I just want to briefly touch on, then I've got to go back to these questions. Before Dante meets with, um, or Dante's going to be bathed in two rivers. The river, the river of Lethe, from the ancient world, is the river of forgetfulness. Hmm. He has to go into that river to forget his sins. So nobody's going to go into hell carrying sins that are going to be exposed to everybody. There's no way to enter heaven with those. So when he goes into Lethe, um, he, he, he loses his memory of all bad things. It's like he's being washed. He's not like, he's being washed. At the very end of this, before he and Beatrice rise into the heavens, he will be bathed in the river of Unoe. Both of these are mythic rivers. In the river of Unoe, all of his good deeds will be recalled. And it goes back to the point I made earlier. This is so crucial. To go into that river after you've lost memory of your sins is to see that something greater is given to you than you had in Eden. Because in Eden, you didn't have any sins. So whatever good deeds Dante has done come out of a life of sin. So a greater grace is being given to him. It's at that point, after he bathes in the Unoe, that he and Beatrice will go into the heavens. And, and she will continue the journey, except she will be able to give him something Virgil didn't, because she carries God, her faith, her knowledge of him, with her. She's not going to cease to use reason. She's going to be explaining things at every point. She's going to be showing Dante there's meaning everywhere in the universe. But she's the guide now. <clears throat> so she's going to be using reason, but she's bringing a reason that's infused with a divine love of faith. Okay? So those two rivers, I, I don't want to go into them. Between the bathing in those two rivers, Dante, um, Beatrice puts on a show and the show is virtually a, um, a mask of church history. It shows Satan coming and what he did, and um, there's, an, um, there's a number of symbols, a tree standing for law and the way the law was done away with and things like that. <clears throat> he's, he's, be, he's being given the, the history of the church as a preparation for what's about to take place when he enters the paradise to go up to heaven. Now I've got two questions here before we... Um, because they're both crucial. Um, and, and 
the Gathering of Poets, three, three, I want to, um, let me take Virgil first. Um, what's your response to Virgil going back? He sees Beatrice coming. I love that line. Um, he turns with all the confidence that makes a child run to its mother's. He turns with confidence in a mother that a child turns to when he's facing something frightening. He turns, Virgil's, in that moment, Virgil's gone. This is his guide, his father, his mentor, the poet that gave him everything, nearly everything that he needed as a poet to strengthen his faith. Virgil's gone. So what do you make of this? I think this is so, I used to get upset. The thought that Virgil would go back to hell really upset me. But I, I <clears throat> never mind. What's, what's your response to this? What are you, Carl, you've got this big smile. I don't think he, I don't think our author wants to expose Virgil to heaven. What is it? That sounds so negative. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? Say that again. He said he, he doesn't want him to know what he's missing. That sounds like a mean thing when you no, put it that way. that sounds like a kind thing. Kind? Yeah. That way he won't agonize about what he's missed. He'll never know what it was. That sounds like a mean thing. It, okay, let me put it differently. Let me, if, if that were as much, if it was a kind thing, if it was a kind thing, why wouldn't he say, Beatrice, let's bring him along? Stacy's is going to go. Stacy's. By the way, Stacy's was a pagan. Remember? Why was he in hell to start with? Who? Virgil. Virgil. Virgil? Why was he in hell? I don't know. But if he was in hell, he's not going to get to heaven, right? <laughs> right. Okay. So well, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> Give that guy an A plus. <laughs> anybody? Anybody else? Troublemakers from Monday. <laughs> I, I love all of you. Every one of you is a troublemaker. Some of you just show it more than others. Come on, anybody else? So is he really in that bad part of hell? Isn't there a sub-hell where he's in that <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Yes. They turn the temperature down. Be, she, no, yes. Go, she, <coughs> do you remember where that was? Well, there's a sub-purgatory, so I'm... It's not a sub. Here, wait, wait, let me, because she's right on. Remember, remember hell is a cone. Yeah. And the first level was the virtuous, virtuous pagans. They weren't suffering. They weren't suffering. They weren't being punished. This is so crucial. The, the next level is lust. Then we get Francesco and Paolo, and we're into active sins. He's a virtuous pagan. Right. right he's a virtuous. There's no sin. He's a virtuous man. But he lacks faith, hope, and charity. So when, when Dante and Virgil approached the poets and philosophers in that level, Remember, there was a castle and a meadow and a faint light. Symbolically, that's his image of a, a community <coughs> of virtuous people um, who didn't have hope. They didn't have that joy, the, the gladness in facing death. They didn't know Christ. So symbolically, that, that level is one of them, in my mind, one of the most powerful arguments against the Protestant mind that we have. <coughs> Dante's acknowledging that the, the effects of the fall were a wound, not depravity. You can't, you can't destroy God, the essence that God gave anything. God made man good. 
You can't destroy an essence. You can wound it. So Dante believes that man is wounded but not depraved. He cannot get to heaven on his own. That's a supernatural condition. Men are natural. To get to heaven, you need a supernatural help, supernatural power. So in hell, the first level, it's not a sub, but you know, it's the first, it's just prior, yeah. Um, and remember, outside of that for Dante was a limbo, so there was even something outside of hell. But the first circle of hell was the virtuous pagans, and then lust and all the others. So Virgil's going to return to that condition where he will be, and it's interesting, I mean, the way that Carl put it, he will not see the things that Beatrice will show Dante, the things that are of hope. And it's interesting, he doesn't even see all that takes place with the, with the ritual. When Beatrice approaches, he turns and Virgil's gone. So he won't see the griffin for what it is, the church ritual and everything else. Doesn't it then seem cruel that that portion of hell even exists? <coughs> if you can't accept that not showing him heaven is, is not cruel, then you would have to acknowledge that that portion of hell shouldn't exist. Except, I mean, yeah, I mean, just logically, if you put it that way, but the other, I mean, what, what I would uphold, put together with that is that um, all those other people didn't make this journey with Dante. Virgil has made the journey. He's seen it all. Well, he hasn't seen it all. Well, what, uh, to this point, he's, uh, I, I want to be really careful because I'm trying to protect something really good here, and I feel like I'm losing it, but we've, we've, I think the whole work has encouraged us to sympathize with Virgil. He's a good man. He's really good. Yeah. So there seems to be something hard here. I want to get to this. I don't want to leave it here. Virgil, Dante loves him. Or put it differently, would, would he have gotten to this point to be handed over to Beatrice without Virgil? No. no, absolutely not. So my question is, allegorically, how are we to understand this moment? Lots of modernist critics who are not believers get really angry. I mean, they say, what a great unkindness. You know, how cruel yeah. of Dante to, <laughs> here's this good man. What's Dante doing allegorically? This is my reading. I, did you have something, Jeannie? Well, I was just going to say, is he showing that no one can get to heaven without Christ? Right. But don't we believe that even virtuous pagans can be in heaven? Yes. So, we do? Yes. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Straighten out your husband, will you? That troublemaker? He's Wait, well, I'm a pagan now. <laughs> they, they can't get to him as of the writing. Not, well, not at this point. Go not, ahead. Not the way Dante is looking right. at it. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Except Statius was. A yeah, Statius, but he converted. Doc. Wait, wait, hold on, because um, Jeannie, you're, you're right on, because you you are right. And your husband's not. Um, <laughs> wait, and, wait, wait. And Dante's not. <laughs> Oh, I love this you right now. Carl, you haven't finished the Paradiso yet. That's where we're going. In the middle of the Paradiso. <laughs> <Right>? Well. <laughs> but Carl said up to this point, in the middle of the, I don't want to give this away, in the middle of the Paradiso, Dante is going to answer that. So we have to wait. But out, my question is allegorically now, because I see this as a sort of devastating moment, this really good man. 
here's here's my I used to trouble over this because I so love Virgil. I love the Aeneid. Dante loves the Aeneid. Stacy has said he could not have done what he did without it. There are all these wonderful. What's Dante saying? I think Dante's saying this. That there comes a point, remember, don't look back. He just did and Virgil's gone. Now he's got to look forward and I think the same thing. You can't, once you enter the life of faith, once you enter that life, you have to give up that kind of reasoning that's defined by its worldliness. In Dante's mind, nobody, not Plato, not even Aristotle, which troubles me a little bit, but nobody understood the pre-Christian world better than Virgil. If you've read the Iliad and the Odyssey, those of you who've read it will, will feel this in your hearts, not just in your mind. You know from the Aeneid that Virgil was capable of feeling things that we don't get from Homer. Virgil is aware of the cost of everything. All the way through the Aeneid, people are dying that he didn't want to see die. You don't get that kind of sympathy in Homer's world. In Homer's world, you've got Achilles above the world, Odysseus above the world. In the Aeneid, you've got Aeneas carrying off the body of that boy, Lausus, whom he had to fight in a battle, whose father was brutal, and he said to his enemies, pick up that boy and bear him off. Those are Hamlet's words, or the words about Hamlet when he's about to be born off the stage in Shakespeare's Hamlet. Pick up that boy and honor him. You can hear a poet weeping, Aeneas weeping, to watch a man he had to kill and wanting to honor him. We don't get close to that in the Iliad or the Odyssey. In that Greek world, your heroism raised you above everything. In Virgil's world, you carry your losses. Remember, Aeneas is on this voyage or journey trying to found city after city after city after city. He fails. He carries through his life with this sense of fail, failures. What's the, Eudora Wilkes, the losing battles? Losing battles. In my mind, that's part one large aspect of our Christian life. We keep going into our life thinking we're going to succeed at everything, and the world blows us away. Constantly, again and again and again and again, we're defeated. The, the cross is the answer to that. We, we believe that coming out of those defeats, something greater is going to be. Maybe not in this world, but that, that cross marks it. Out of it comes a risen life. So Virgil got closer to that than Homer. So in one sense, I think Dante's saying Virgil is the embodiment, allegorically, he's the embodiment of, of the best that can be expected of, of the natural heart and mind. But once you enter a life of faith, you have to turn away from that. And I'm saying, I've tried to put it as strongly as I could because I want everybody, I believe, I want everybody to see how hard that is. I'm trying to underline it as much as I can. There's no way Dante could have gotten here without Virgil. That's how important he is. It's his way of also showing that's how hard it is to let go of that kind of reason. Is Beatrice going to not use reason? She's going to use reason everywhere. But what underlies that reason is completely different from what underlies Virgil's reason. She's rooted in God, not the world. So her, reason, her reasoning powers will be far more illuminated than Virgil's. But we're going beyond that world. So what, I think allegorically what Dante's showing us is the life of faith, because remember, th this is extraordinary. Dante was in danger of being damned. Heaven was sent after him. Mary, Lucia, Beatrice, Virgil. 
Virgil brings them to the earthly paradise back where we began. But after Christ came, we weren't meant to go back to Eden. We were meant to go on to the New Jerusalem. So in part, I'm answering my question. Why doesn't he see, why doesn't he see um, Christ in the chariot? Why is he seeing Beatrice? I think because he's not ready yet. He's just beginning to enter a spiritual world in which faith will show him things that reason couldn't. Because that's an extension of the journey. The, the point that I want to underscore here is, I, I think Virgil has to mean a lot to us if you appreciate this moment. Because we won't see the full weight of it otherwise. To continue on that journey means learning not to use reason the way we did all along. I'm trusting all of us know that. Wait, wait, just, I'm trusting all of us know that. That um, we reach a point in our life where we realize the way we've been arguing or the reasons that we've been given or the, what we do with our mind. We, 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 remember, I've, I've harped on this. We are so self-sufficient as creatures. We're so capable. We're so able to do things. We get into arguments all the time. It's not this way. It's this way. It's this way. We use our mind in certain ways to make points, to draw conclusions. We should. It's the nature of our mind. But how much, do, how much aware are we of the way in which our worldliness blinds us, prevents us from using our reason in a better way? Once we turn to God, if we do, and we learn to trust Him, what does that do for our powers of reason? How does it change it? Remember Dante's words, I came to cure my blindness. The whole, I've been pressing this for the last three weeks, at every level of purgatory, souls are, are having to labor to learn to see different. Remember, the, the proud have boulders. They have to twist their necks. To, they have to strain to stop themselves because the natural thing in their pride is to do something else. The envious have their eyes shut. The wrathful are in clouds. At every level, they have to struggle with a habit to change it. That's how hard it is. So, I mean, and think about the church. Year by year by year, we're asked to do penance. I mean, when I think about that, I think there's the mercy of the cross. We don't have to go to the cross all at once. It's thinned out you know, over the course of a lifetime that Christ's mercy, I mean, I think that's one of the ways in which Christ's mercy presents itself to us. We're asked to take on ourselves, to deny, learn to deny our wills, but gradually. So, anyway, sorry, go ahead, Carl. Uh, when Beatrice is there, and Virgil turns around, and then he's not there anymore. Right. Don, 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 Don turns around, and Virgil's and, not. And Virgil's not there. Right. Virgil does not, at that point, yet have faith, hope, or charity, right? Right. So then he doesn't deserve to go to heaven. Right. Nobody's arguing that. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not even close to that. All I'm saying, I think the point, if maybe I've made it clear, the point that I'm making is, I, I think part of the beauty of this and the way that Dante's done it is, with Virgil, he's shown us how great human reason is. I mean, I've tried to emphasize that, that he's just, I have nothing but good to say about him. Just nothing. He doesn't have faith, hope, or charity. He doesn't. He's going to go back to but allegorically, I want to answer this problem because it's, it's one that critics raise all the time. Why does virtue go back? And I'm trying to answer it. I think we're supposed to 
feel everything we can for Virgil. Because if we don't, we don't realize the cost of what we have to do in order to go on. We, we have to learn to stop using reason that way. And I'm saying, with all of its greatness, I, I cannot, I hope, I mean, I've tried not to underestimate that. I've tried to underline it as strongly as I can. I love Virgil. Absolutely love that man. I love the Aeneid. Part of my life carries him. I believe Dante did. Allegorically, he's showing us the cost of what happens to continue in this life of faith. And if anybody minimizes that, or if their way of doing it is grudging how mean Dante was because he said, I think they're missing something. I think allegorically the point is, that's how great it is. We have to learn to go on in faith to, to do things differently. To give up reason? No, absolutely. We're not Protestants. <coughs> We're not corrupted. <coughs> but allegorically what Dante is showing us is that a, a reason <coughs> infused with faith is very different from a reason without faith, hope, or love. So I've tried to un underscore Virgil's importance. I love that man. Absolutely love him. When we get to the middle of the Paradiso, we're going to see Dante answering, I mean, um, supporting Jeannie's point that God will do something with Pagan. It's my belief that he does that with Virgil. I don't want to go there because I don't want to open up enough. But, but allegorically, I think this is what we're supposed to feel at this moment. Okay. Turn to page 373. We've got to start winding up. 373. Um, 372 towards the bottom. The recognition of my guilt so stunned my heart I fainted. <laughs> I just wanted to read that. There we are again. If I gave a quiz and I asked you how many times Dante passed out in this book, could you count them? No. I think it's three or four. I haven't counted. I wouldn't give that. Stupid. I think we passed out a lot more. I never gave a multiple choice in my life. Um, he just faints. When I revived, that lady I first saw strolling alone was now bent over me saying, hold on to me, hold tight. That, I mean, isn't that when things go hard, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before I reached the sacred bank, I heard asparagus me, so sweetly sung, my mind cannot recall. Cleanse me of my sin. It's from the songs. The lady, love, the lovely lady, opening her arms, embraced my head and dipped it in the stream just deep enough to let me drink of it. She took me from those waters, cleansed, and led me to the dance of the four lovely ones. So um, now he's cleansed of his sins, which means he's prepared to see things even more differently now, right? Because his eyes are not clouded with them. A thousand yearning, oh, look deeply, look with all your sight, they said, for now you stand before those emeralds from which love once shot loving darts at you. That's, that is when he was a younger man and Beatrice looked at him, he was overcome. A thousand yearning flames of my desire held my eyes fixed upon those brilliant eyes that held the griffin fixed within their range. She's looking at the griffin, who is a dual image, right? Lion, eagle. The lion is the noble, the eagle is the just. So it's an image of Christ. Um, like a sunlight in a mirror shining back, I saw the twofold creature in her eyes reflecting its two natures separately. Imagine, reader, how amazed I was to see the creature standing there unchanged, 
yet in its image changing constantly. And while my soul delighted and amazed was tasting of that food which satisfied and at the same time makes one hungrier. That to me is one of the most perfect images, descriptions of the wholeness of the soul that I've been talking about. In the presence of God, he, right now he's getting an image. Because Beatrice is looking at the, at the griffin, he's looking at Beatrice. So he's experiencing the dual nature of Christ in her, she looks at the griffin. And the description of it is, he looks and every desire is satisfied while setting the desires on for longing for more. And I'm suggesting that's the nature of heaven. Remember, we've been talking about the wholeness. There's no longer, there's an indwelling. So when one soul enters heaven, it's just not heaven plus one. It's heaven exponentially one. That It's like the multiplication of the fishes because indwelling is going to be taking place everywhere. Um, imagine that. If you're in the presence of God, every desire you have will be satisfied. You'll be at rest. And every desire in you will be set on wanting more because God's infinite. People today, I mean, forever, I've talked about heaven, heaven as a static condition. It's just, it's eternal. I mean, I think it's your image of, you know, the way we quantify something. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's that way at all. And we can't, we can't give our minds around it. This image of being satisfied and yet set on for more. How can it be otherwise in the presence of God? Every desire will be quieted and set on longing for more. You Infinitely. Can you imagine that? Just, anyway, I think Dante's captured it perfectly here. Okay, I'm going to... One last thing and we're going to stop, but I want to... When Before he and um, Beatrice rise into the heavens, it describes him... Um, 386, but here before us is the stream you knowing now let lead him there and it is as your want revive his weakened powers in its flow then gracious as she was without demure submitting her own wills to another there it is again another will remember we first read that with Odysseus when he saw that mountain and he wanted to, he wanted to go to it symbolically of wanting to have that wholeness to, to be whole without God but it, it has that line but as another wills he goes down because man can't do that. He can't attain that wholeness on his own. We've seen that as in other wills repeatedly. It's, it's an expression of how important it is that we learn to give our wills to another. Until we give our wills to another, something won't come right in us. Then gracious as she was without demure submitting her own will to another's will, once this was made apparent by a sign, the lovely lady took me by the hand and said to Stasius, as she moved ahead with queenly modesty, and you come too. Reader, if I had space to write more words, I'd sing at least in part of that sweet draught which never could have satisfied my thirst. But now I have completed every page planned for my poem's second canticle. I am checked by the bridle of my art. For those holiest waters I returned to her reborn, a tree renewed in bloom with newborn foliage immaculate eager to rise now, ready for the stars. Remember, every canticle ends with this reference to the stars. It did in hell, it did here. When we get to Purgatory at Paradiso, it'll say, and return to the stars. It's, it's, the, it's the order of the heavens God created. Um, we have the poetry thing to do, but I, I think I want to wait. I'll just touch on it next week on the review. But I want to leave you guys with this question, or maybe somebody want to take a stab at it now.
Why is Dante not seeing Christ here? Why is he seeing the griffin and Beatrice? He's apparently been purified. He, wait, let me put it. He finished purgatory, right? And turns for Virgil. Virgil's gone. Now he's with Beatrice. He looks into Beatrice's eyes when she's looking at the griffin. And now he's going to go into the heavens. Why isn't he seeing Christ here? Um, why is that still waiting if he's apparently purged? And what is this meeting with Beatrice? Let me take a minute with that. Why? If he was purged, right, at the end of when he, when, when he and Virgil emerged and Virgil said, I crown and mitre you, now do whatever you want, you would think he would be pure, everything's okay. And yet when he meets Beatrice, she takes him apart. He faints. He's, he's so humiliated by what she says and the sternness of her voice. She's merciless. She just rips him up. Why, when he's already purified? What's symbolically what's going on here? There's these two moments, one with Virgil and one with Beatrice, it seems to me, have a lot of meaning. And we need to any thoughts? If he's pured, why why does he need to go through this ordeal with this woman? Because he's lacking something else. Something's lacking. Yeah, right. What? What? Well, even if he was pure and she wasn't there, he'd go straight into heaven. But obviously, as Linda said, because there's something missing that Beatrice had to, was there. Or otherwise, you didn't need Beatrice, right? Right, right, right. He won't go straight into heaven because remember, well, I mean, I don't... It's interesting to me that he doesn't go straight into the Dante shows he's got things to learn before he can get to Christ. Anybody? Which we'll learn in the next book. Hmm? Which we'll learn in the next book. Well, those things, but I'm not sure we'll get clear on why um, why he has to meet with Beatrice after he's gone through purgatory and gets scathed. He has to have his memory of sins wiped out. Apparently purgatory itself wouldn't do that. That's a holy washing. And he has to um, have all of his good deeds restored. And remember, the good deeds mean some things that happened as a result of your sins. The, you know, the, the sins are not meaningless. Maybe Even if they get washed away, they, they help produce another... Oh, here, put it differently. The book opens with Dante saying, in the middle of my life, I found myself in a dark woods. Now he's returned to those woods. They are fresh, aromatic, sweet. Winds wafting, he meets Matilda there. There's this beauty and graciousness and everything that's going on. So it's completely different woods, but he sinned. And I think what Dante showed us is we're, none of us is just going back to Eden because Eden was a sinless state. Now we've experienced sin. And I think what he's showing is we are meant not to just throw them away like they're nothing, that something was given to us through that experience, most especially in Christ having to answer them. But, but we learned to deal with something that we didn't, that Adam and Eve didn't have to deal with before the fall. Well, are they part of our souls forever? What? The sins. Mm -mm. No, according, no, I don't think that, no, the church, you don't go into, you don't see Christ until you're purified so. Let me offer so this. So Beatrice completes him. You want to flesh that out? I know you said that comically, but come on. 
You complete me. Oh, <laughs> I feel like I'm watching. What's that money? Give me the money. Yeah, that's it. That's the what's, movie. What's the, what's that's the, the, the movie. Yeah. <laughs> no, the no, movie. it's... it's Give me the money. What's the It's the Tom Cruise Show me the money. Show me the no, money. but what's Jerry the movie? Maguire. Jerry Maguire. That's right. Jerry Maguire. Show me the money. There you go. That was the football player. Yeah. He comes in and says, you complete me. I love that line. I just thought that was a good... Um, let me offer this. Let me offer this. This is the only meaning I can make of it, because to me it's puzzling. He's been purified. So what's Dante doing? I think it's this. It, it's, it's not only that um, he has to have his sins completely washed and the memories restored. Nobody will go to heaven without that. The sins have to be washed away and, and our memories restored to, 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 come, to be, return to this wholeness you know, that the Christian life is taking us towards. Remember, the whole, the whole goal of this is to get back, not to Eden, but to the Father and Christ particularly because Christ changed the world, to get back to him and the Trinity. I think what he's, allegorically, what he's showing in the Beatrice episode is that every, this is all, the only sense I can make of it, that every man, every man carries within him some original innocent love. <coughs> Beatrice awakened that in Dante. Dante had seen lots of other women before Beatrice. But he saw in her something that awakened something more. And I think what he's showing is that every, every man is going to have a reckoning. Every woman, all of us, is going to be a reckoning for that original innocent love. Because the biggest betrayal somehow occurs there. You know, wh whoever happened to awaken that love. It may be a spouse. Remember, Dante was married. It's not his wife that he's going to be, she, I'm sure she would have a lot of not good things to say to Dante if she were here, but it's not, it's not Dante's wife. I think that's so important. The, what are those images that first awakened in us as human beings an image of God or the Trinity, some sense of holiness, some effulgence, some light, something that struck the soul, even, even if at the moment, because we were too young, we didn't fully grasp it, some love is awakened, and we betray it. Otherwise, I can't make any sense of this. I think what he's showing us is that a reckoning will be there, that each one of us will have to, because that's, that's like, because remember, Beatrice is a Christ image. She's a Christ bearer. When she arrives in that procession, she's a Christ bearer. She's bringing Christ to him. The griffin is too. Now she's going to take him too. So she's going to show... Dante things about the universe that are going to reveal Christ that Virgil never could have shown. So she's a Christ bearer. What were those images for each of us that gave us that first glimpse of, you know, that first intuition, just sense that we didn't in our fallen condition? And I'm assuming that at some point it's got to be a person, not just a thing or a piece of artwork or. So Dante's had to confront his sins. He's had to have his memories restored. And I think he's had to confront some original innocence of love that was lost and is now recovered that makes him prepared to go into the heavens to see what um, Beatrice is going to reveal. Okay? 
Any questions or? Tell Fred I hope he's feeling better. I got off the cover with him. <laughs> what? I hope I took enough notes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.